that we're thankful for a warm and comfortable place like this to meet would maybe be an understatement on a day such as the one that we're faced with today, but aren't we honored and thankful to be able to gather on the closing day of the year 2017 and to do so as the shades of evening gather about us as well. There is nothing finer, I know Gary often reminds us of that, but nothing finer we could be doing, nothing more significant, higher in priority than worshiping the great God of heaven. You may have noticed that we just sang a song a moment ago, The Great Physician. And that song has throughout the ages no doubt been such a tremendous and powerful song of comfort and encouragement because it calls us to think a little bit about the great name of the Christ. But tonight's lesson, as you may have already noticed, is, is, is entitled, Seraph Song. Why don't we, in fact, devote our consideration tonight to a lesson centered around that very idea. In fact, you'll notice on this next slide, One of y'all may have to remind, Greg, would you mind advancing the slide, please? Thank you. That isn't it true that among the songs that we sing, it's often an impressive thing to appreciate that when we gather for worship, we love to appreciate the nature, of course, of the lessons, and it should be our intent as those who proclaim and teach Bible classes and preach that, that the Word of God always needs to be presented in a way that's understandable. It needs to be presented in a way that not only is it understood by a select few, but all who assemble and gather should be encouraged and uplifted by. But may I suggest nothing less than that should be true of the songs that we sing as well. These songs are, in fact, remarkable in their message, penetrating in their thrust, and so very encouraging. In Colossians 3, verse number 16, again, doesn't it say, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And therefore, when we sing, we do teach and we do admonish, and we, in fact, direct praise and homage and glory unto God. But yet the song we just sang a moment ago maybe is one that has within it some words that are not as familiar as perhaps some of them are. In fact, you'll notice this is really a continuation. We've done a few lessons previously here at Pippin, at least, on this theme. We did a lesson again a few months ago in which we cast a spotlight on Ebenezer because that too is in one of the songs that we sing together. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And we learned a great lesson drawn from 1 Samuel 7 about that. We also looked at a lesson, again a few months ago, about Night with Eben Pinion. And as beautiful as that song is, again it has a name, at least wording in it that isn't as familiar as it might be, and we were hopeful that that lesson was helpful. Tonight, what about the song we just sang, The Great Physician? The Great Physician now is here, the sympathizing Jesus he speaks the drooping heart to cheer. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. Sweetest note in seraph song. Sweetest name on mortal tongue. Now, pausing at that point, you'll notice already mentioned in the refrain is this phrase, sweetest note in seraph song. May I ask, what is a seraph song? What are we saying when we voice the words of that song together? It would certainly appear from the context to be a beautiful presentation, but what does it really mean? Well, tonight as we close that slide and come to the next one, we will in fact be led to give some consideration to it. And the first thing that I would invite us to do is to think again about the words of the song. 
the great physician. And again, the refrain reads like this, Sweetest note in seraph song, Sweetest name on mortal tongue, Sweetest carol ever sung, Jesus, blessed Jesus. It's easy to conclude that the song is magnifying, extolling, and honoring the name of the Christ. But may I suggest that the actual number of places in the Bible wherein this word is found are very, very few. Of course, our interest is seraph. What does that mean? Well, let me first of all help you appreciate that as far as I was able to find, the actual initial wording that's translated something like seraph only occurs in basically two passages. One of them is in Numbers 21, the other in Isaiah chapter 6 that Jeff just read for us just a moment ago. Now, it's the Isaiah passage that will captivate us for the next few moments because it really is the one that presents the thought and idea behind the song that we'll briefly consider tonight. You'll notice on that slide, as you revisit Isaiah chapter 6, the reading again sounds like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. It would appear that Isaiah was privileged to be in the presence of a tremendous vision in which he saw God resting upon His throne, ruling in absolute sovereignty and majesty. But isn't it interesting that also this reigning took place wherein was a temple and the train that God was wearing, if you please, filled the whole temple. Now, as, imp as impressive as that sounds, it continues in verse number 2. Above it, and I might pause to say, from what I'm able to tell, the actual Hebrew word would have been better translated above him, not above it. Above him, so above God, stood the seraphims, which one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Let's pause at this point and notice, seraphim is the plural form of the word seraph, which is the word we sang together a moment ago in the great physician. Seraph is singular, seraphim is plural. And therefore we are called upon at this point to immediately give some consideration to the nature of the songs which the seraphims were singing. You'll notice on that slide, I did point out a moment ago that the only other place I was able to find this word was in Numbers 21. There you may remember that after Israel complained and after they had appreciated the great blessing of God in the manna but chose to ignore it by virtue of complaining to God about this light bread, their spirit had become to loathe it. And you may notice rather interestingly that God sent fiery serpents among them. That word fiery is the same one that in singular form is seraph. Now clearly there, it had to do with something burning. It had to do with something that really was fiery. But you'll notice here in Isaiah chapter 6, it references some heavenly beings, the seraphims. I wonder what kind of song the seraphs were singing tonight. Why don't we give some thought to that because we sang about it and we in fact greatly lauded the consideration of it. So why don't we come to close that slide and prepare ourselves for the next one by observing the following. The sweetest noted seraph song. Let's continue it by going to the next slide. In so doing, you may appreciate the following with me. When Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon His throne, how often in the Word of God are you and I reminded that God Himself does rule absolutely. 
He reigns in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4 verse 25. And on this occasion, in the midst of what no doubt was a troubling scenario, Isaiah was a bit comforted by seeing the continual reign of the God of heaven. You and I can be encouraged by that as well. God never has abdicated. It may often appear that the world is moving so far from Him. It may often appear that things are swinging in a direction so opposed to the truth and godliness, but He has not abdicated. Isaiah needed to be comforted. I did ask you to notice the disturbing scene. As you begin reading from Isaiah chapter 1, you're reminded of the fact that the people of God in Isaiah's time had become exceedingly wicked in the sense that even their worship had been corrupted. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, we're reminded when the people came together to worship, God in essence told them, you really ought not even be here because I'm not going to accept your worship. I would suppose that ought to be frightful to think of individuals assembling for the purpose of what they consider to be exaltation and worship of God, and yet God despises what they're doing. He hates what's taking place, and He absolutely refuses to accept it. No wonder it's a disturbing scene. In fact, God through Isaiah told the people, even an ox knows its master. It knows who feeds it. My people, despite the fact I've fed them, I've protected them, I've preserved them, I've cared for them, they still don't know me. God told the people, even beasts of the field act toward their master better than you've acted toward me. That's a shocking lesson. No wonder then the disturbing character here in the midst of a people like that, Isaiah was given this vision where he saw the great God of heaven reigning in absolute glory and his train filled the temple. Let's revisit verse number 2. Above him stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. Let's pause right there. Now I've asked you to notice on the slide that in this vision, Isaiah also saw something very unusual. Throughout the Word of God, on many occasions, we are introduced to various creatures in heaven. But it would appear these seraphims are not angels. It also doesn't appear they're cherubims either. In other words, these are rather unique heavenly creatures, it would appear. For one thing, note the number of wings. They had six. Now that's an oddity, isn't it? And we're told what they did with them. Two of those wings, they used to cover their face. Two, with two of those wings, they covered their feet. With two of their wings, they flew. Now you may notice immediately I've tried to summarize based on this passage some of the capabilities of these seraphims. Notice they had a face, they had feet, they had hands, they had six wings. Before we're done, we will learn they were capable of standing, they were capable of flying, and they were capable of speaking. Already we're inching closer and closer to a seraph song. For if these seraphims were able to speak, notice they were able to sing. They were able to proclaim in great measure the characteristic features that we're about to study. As you and I look even further, notice verse number 3, what did they say? And one, that's one of the seraphims, cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Of all the messages which you might imagine that a heavenly creature such as this might expound. Notice what the message was. 
one of these seraphims spoke to another one and proclaimed an absolute triumphant character. Three times the holiness of God. In fact, he went on to say that the whole earth is full of that glory. One of the things then you and I sang about a moment ago, this seraph song reminds us, those seraphims cast the spotlight clearly on the holiness of God, the thoroughness of it, the grandeur of that holiness and what's involved in it. It is with that in mind, might we note this. In verse number 4, we see one consequence of this proclamation. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Aren't you a bit amazed as you reflect on, as Isaiah witnessed this event in that particular setting, in that vision, he noticed in essence an earthquake that shook the temple which was in the vision. And it says the door, the post moved at the proclamation of God's holiness. Now you and I never lose sight of the greatness of God's holiness. It is true that it is something that is truly going to captivate our attention on that fateful day we actually get to meet Him. May I say at this point, let's go ahead and notice, Isaiah immediately realized something. Let's read verses 5 and following. Then said I that I refers to Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Aren't you impressed that at that moment, the matter that came instantly before the mind of Isaiah was this. Here he was able to witness the great God in ruling and reigning measure, his marvelous sovereignty. And the first thing that crossed his mind was the woefulness of himself. How the fact he was a sinner and the fact that he himself was undone and not only that, the people among whom he dwelled was just like him in that sense at least. You see, the holiness of God will invariably cause you and I to react at least in a principally similar way. God's holiness is an incredible dividing line between sin and Himself. You and I can't envision, we can't fathom the thought of coming before God covered in sin. Notice what happened in verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. Now you notice one of these seraphims flew and took one of the live coals from off the altar that was also seen in the vision. Now that immediately draws to us the Old Testament because there when the tabernacle was constructed, remember there was an altar of burnt offering outside it and an altar of incense located within it. You'll notice that tongs were utilized and took a live coal from that altar. But notice what happened to it in verse 7. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. The feeling that Isaiah had that he was undone, the perception that he had that God's holiness was far grander and greater than he, and he wasn't worthy to come before the God of heaven. Apparently the seraphim agreed with that and brought this live coal in the vision, touched it to Isaiah's lips, and you'll notice he declared Isaiah's sin purged. He declared Isaiah no longer was in that state of distanced unholiness, but rather was in himself in a fit position to understand that in that vision he had indeed seen the God of heaven. 
when you and I close that slide and come to the next one, we are ready to appreciate the continuation with this picture. I tried to find a picture which I thought might do some semblance of justice. I'm not sure really that I had any success at all. But here is some artist's rendition of a picture reminding us of this scene that Isaiah saw. The great God of heaven on His throne with His train so long and so majestic and surrounded Him above were these seraphims with all their six wings covering various aspects of their being. Not only that, here's yet another picture. I also found it as well. Again, I'm not sure that it does adequate justice, but maybe the thought is reasonable. You'll notice the various wings in the picture on the left. You'll appreciate covering the feet, covering the face, and with two of them, the seraphims were able to fly. In the right-hand picture, a somewhat smaller picture, but nonetheless, it at least has within it the thought that that word again in Hebrew suggests a brilliance. It suggests a fiery character. Could it be that these seraphims have an element of brightness and brilliance about them? Perhaps so, given again the Hebrew word that's behind it. At that very scene though, let's go ahead and look at the next, the next slide. As you and I come to this one, you'll notice the statement therein declared. The nature of that forgiveness placed upon what it was that happened when that live coal was touched to Isaiah's lips. May you and I not forget that apparently would be predicated on the later death of Jesus Christ at the cross. For Hebrews chapter 9 verses 16 and 17 declare that that blood flowed backward to cleanse the sins of those under the Old Testament regime. This apparently was in light of that and then what a commissioning was given to Isaiah. This scene happened relatively early in the prophetical ministry of Isaiah. You noticed in verse number 1, reference was made to King Uzziah that he died. And yet, that was the first king in which, during the reign of which, Isaiah prophesied. Verse number 8 now says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord. Not only did he see the Lord in this vision, he heard God make a statement. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. After the cleansing forgiveness and the characteristic means of that, the next question that Isaiah heard was, verse number 8, Whom shall I send? God still had a work to be done. He had a mission that needed to be accomplished. And did you notice Isaiah's immediate reply? Here am I, he said, send me. Isaiah, at that point, in realization of the holiness of God and in realization of the mission which God wished to be accomplished, he couldn't wait to be a part of the solution. He couldn't wait. Here am I, he said, send me. We sometimes sing another song in our book wherein that phrase occurs, right? Here am I, send me, it says. This is the text where that song again is found. You may notice as you look at that slide with me, Closing that eighth verse, you notice he again declared, Here am I, send me. At this point, I'd like us to utilize the remainder of the time we have this evening to draw four applications from this scene we've just studied. Four applications that I trust will be helpful, that will be encouraging. Application number one will come on the next slide. I entitled this lesson, A Seraph Song, and now we understand why. When we sing the song, the great physician now is here, and we reach the refrain and it says, 
in reference to a seraph song. You and I have now studied the only passage in all the wonderful Word of God in which a reference is made to the language that these seraphs, these seraphims, if you please, might well utilize. Aren't you and I told in various places and in a number of ways that there is an incredible language to those creatures in heaven? Angels communicate. What was it Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 beginning in verse 1? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So angels have tongues in the sense that they communicate, they speak, they have language. And on a number of occasions, we remember that angelic visitors to earth spoke with various individuals such as Samson's father, Manoah. And of course, wasn't it the angels that spoke to both Mary and Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, and Luke chapters 1 and 2? Maybe it is. We can also recall this one. In 2 Corinthians 12, wasn't it true there that Paul, as he authenticated and made statements of his own nature of revelation... He said, I was caught up to the third heaven and heard unspeakable words. Now what did Paul hear? We don't know. He wasn't able to share it. No doubt we've often wondered what he heard. You and I can rest assured there is communicative capabilities in heaven. And the seraphim spoke. And therefore when you and I sing the song about a seraph song, it should cause us to realize the grandeur of those events. And not only that, according to the words which you and I sang a moment ago, what is that seraph song? Sweetest note in seraph song. Sweetest name on mortal tongue. Sweetest carol ever sung. Jesus, blessed Jesus. Now that's an entirely biblical concept, isn't it? Because isn't it true that the various creatures in heaven, according to Revelation 5, all of them, not some, all of them proclaim the worthiness of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13 declares all creatures in heaven. That would include the seraphims. And isn't it true as they laud and magnify the name of Christ? You and I did that too, the sweetest note in seraph song. Has there ever been a name like Jesus? Has there ever been one who did for the human family what He did? Giving His life on the cross, shedding His blood, that you and I might be washed in it and understand all the sweetness and the promise and the consequence of salvation. That seraph song brings us to note a few other passages. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in the fifth verse of that chapter, sometimes a little passage we call the anthem that calls to our mind the thought of the Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow of things in heaven, that would include the seraphims, of things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Oh, how great is the name of Jesus. There, as well as in that Revelation passage, all the heavenly host magnify and exalt the name of Jesus. 
perhaps one final passage in Revelation 19. That passage we looked at in its context last Wednesday evening. And we saw on that occasion how that indeed this one who rides on the white horse, who wears a vesture dipped in blood, is the very one who's called the King of kings and Lord of lords. Those scenes are stirring. They're compelling. Lesson number one has been the seraph song about which we sing truly is biblical, it's scriptural to magnify and exalt the name of Christ. But let's look at another application. In addition to this first one, consider this one with me. It has to do with Isaiah's reaction. When Isaiah was so honored and blessed to be in the position he was, his immediate reaction was his own unworthiness. The characteristic of human ungodliness. I would again submit to each of us that when we truly come to grips with the nature of God's holiness, we too can't help but feel the same way. Let me again read verse 5. Then said I, Woe is me! Notice Isaiah called a woe upon himself, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Apparently Isaiah was keenly aware that he had spoken some things which were improper. And not only that, the people among whom he dwelled also were guilty of the same. Have you and I ever said something we wish we hadn't? Have we ever uttered something that we came to regret hereafter? I'm sure all of us have if we're honest. Maybe in fairness, aren't you again impressed with when he was faced with God's holiness... When he was faced with God's awesomeness, he was keenly aware of his own undoneness. May you and I always be humble enough to recognize the nature of sinfulness and what it brings about. It is for that reason I might ask you to reflect on Isaiah 59 with me from the same book that this is taken from. Later in the 59th chapter, God speaking to Isaiah and through him to the people said, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither His ear heavy that He cannot hear. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid His face from you that He will not hear. You see what the problem was. Their sins had driven a wedge, a chasm if you please, far greater than the Grand Canyon between God and them. That's what sin invariably does. Isaiah was keenly aware of it. Let's add to that this one in Habakkuk 1.13. Another one of the prophets of the Old Testament so loudly shouted as God spoke through him, God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. That is, God won't be where iniquity is. He's too pure, too holy, too godly and right to be in such a place as that. Doesn't that highlight how desperately we need the forgiveness available from the Christ? Because as human beings, by ourselves, we're undone. Didn't Paul write it like this in Romans 3.23? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes every one of us. We need the blood of Christ to cleanse us so that we aren't in the same position that Isaiah was. We don't want to be undone for if in that condition we know we cannot approach God. It is with that in mind might we come to the last two observations on that slide. Aren't you immediately impressed with Paul's reaction in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. 
Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was thankful to be covered by the blood of Christ. And every day he lived because his old man had been crucified and he now walked with Christ. If you've been baptized, you too rose as a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And you too are able to walk each day hand in hand with the most powerful one of all. One final thought on that slide. Romans 8, 1 reads it. The great promise, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you are walking in the light, walking in the, not after the matters of the flesh, but after the Spirit, you can rest assured you've been cleansed from your sin and our soul on an ongoing basis. The seraph song has reminded us of a whole lot. What about application number three? You'll notice on this slide, I think there was a question that was asked in verse number 8. And it's a question that there's a little two-letter word in it. Let's not overlook it too quickly. Let me read it again. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? What about the word us in this context? I thought that Isaiah was in the place of witnessing this amazing vision. And yet when God asked the question, He said, Who will go for us? Why did the God of heaven use a plural pronoun? You and I as believers in the Word of God know very well the answer. In fact, we've encountered it from Genesis chapter 1 onward. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And even at that time, the realization, of course, is a plural consideration. And by the time we get to verse 26, we're left with no doubt because God says, Let us make man in our image, even at the creation of man. You remember that God made reference to a plurality. And one more time, the plural pronoun occurs here. Who will go for us? You and I realize the Bible teaches that there are three personalities in the Godhead. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three are eternal. All three are God. Now, that's not to say there are three gods, for they are perfectly united. Didn't Jesus say in John 17, even as He prayed on the night prior to His crucifixion, Father, that they may believe in Me, that Thou hast sent Me, and that they may understand that I and Thou and Thou and Me, that they may be one even as we are. Jesus said He and the Father were one. That unity, that oneness is a remarkable truth. And at this point, you'll notice one more time, the Godhead is set before us as a fact. A few other passages. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, one of the most beautiful benedictions anywhere in the Bible. You notice that as Paul closed the 2 Corinthians letter, he made note of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and highlighted the grandeur and sweetness to them in the closing message to the church in Corinth. Maybe one final observation in Colossians 2 verse 9, as Paul wrote to the Colossian congregation, he referenced that in all the fullness of the Godhead bodily was Jesus Christ. Even Paul referred to the Godhead. And that brings us to application number four. On this same slide, you'll note this. A moment ago as I read Isaiah chapter 6, I stopped at the end of verse 8. But this lesson is one that is so penetrating, so powerful, 
So we meet it that it's going to demand that we read a few additional verses. Remember the scene, please, with me. Isaiah has been blessed to see this remarkable vision of God reigning. After reminded of his own undoneness, he was cleansed or purged by the nature of the seraphim touching his mouth with that live coal. And then after that, after the question was asked, who shall go for us? It was Isaiah who said, here am I, send me. He was ready to go do what God wanted done. Question, what was it God wanted done? Let's begin reading in verse 9. And he said, go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted, without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And God's reply was, verse number 9, Isaiah, you go and preach. You go and proclaim. You go and declare. Now, he immediately said that what you say, there are going to be a lot of people who are not going to perceive it. They're going to hear you, but they're not going to understand it. And there are going to be a lot of people who will witness literally you standing and preaching, but they won't perceive it. The message will somehow be aloof to them. I would say this is the very passage that Jesus quoted on one occasion. You might recall at one time they asked Him, Jesus, why do you teach in parables? Jesus quoted this passage verbatim in Matthew 13. He quoted it and said, Though I preach some, though they hear me, they won't understand. And though they visually see what I, that I'm preaching, they won't gain the message. May we say it's not because of any fault in the message. It's because of the heart of those who hear. Some people you see are not fertile soil. Their heart is thorny ground or it's stony soil or it's wayside ground. And though they hear it, Satan snatches it away for it germinates and brings forth. But would you and I be impressed... God told Isaiah, you go and preach. There's something amazing about the Word of God. You would think in a kind of vision, some might be quick to say, God's great, why couldn't He work a miracle? Why couldn't there be some other answer to Isaiah's request? There's nothing more powerful than this. Nothing. And when you and I appreciate God told Isaiah, you go and preach it. Even though some of them won't like what you say, even though many, in fact, will turn a deaf ear to it, it doesn't change the message. You don't change the message to fit what they want to hear. You proclaim this. And did you notice Isaiah then said, How long? How long am I supposed to do this? Did you note God's answer? Let me read it again. Verse 11. Then said I, How long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be desolate. Isaiah, I don't care if the people utterly famish and perish away. The message must never be changed to fit what man wants to hear. I'd submit that's the fourth and final application tonight. And perhaps what better way to think about beginning 2018 we have been bequeathed the grandest, most wonderful prize in terms of the Word of God.
And you and I stand firm on the absolute nature of it, and it must never, ever be compromised. I realize many men have wished to do that very thing, to make it more palatable, to draw larger crowds. Did you notice here? Drawing crowds wasn't in the mind of God. If everybody perishes, Isaiah, you still preach the same message. Today, you and I are blessed to have the wonderful Word of God in purity, in sweetness. Did Jesus say in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And so it is, as you and I close that slide. It reminds us of Paul's famous words to Timothy, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead as is appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. That reads us through verse 5 of 2 Timothy 4. You notice Paul told Timothy, not everybody's going to like the message. They're even going to bring to themselves false teachers because their ears are itching. But Paul told Timothy, preach the word. In season, out of season, and as you and I know, that means when it's convenient and when it's not. May you and I always stand thoroughly, firmly, and squarely on the Word of God. After all, a life based on it will be a life not only here, but a life that's eternal. As you and I come to the closing slide tonight, you notice we have learned about a seraph song. The great physician now is here, the sympathizing Jesus. He speaks the drooping heart to cheer, oh, hear the voice of Jesus, sweetest name. Now tonight, if you are apart from the Lord due to sin, if you have been separated from Him, have you been reminded about the seraph song and what all that represents? I hope you have. We've learned these lessons. Human unworthiness, the characteristic features surrounding the Godhead, and finally the grandeur and power of the Word of God. And all of that was prefaced by the need that we have to praise the name of Christ. If you haven't been able to do that, Honestly, tonight you need to come forward and make a public response to the invitations of the gospel. If we could help you do that tonight as a wayward child of God, come back to your first love. The Lord's begging you to come. He's imploring you to come. He's waiting for you to make the decision. Just like that church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 verse 5, come back to your first love. Tonight we'd be honored to make note of your repentance and confession and pray to God on your behalf. If you'd like to become a Christian, what better night could there be than this one? Confess your belief in Christ. Make observation of repentance. Confess the greatness of His name and be baptized. Tonight, if we could help anybody in either of these ways, we'd love to do it and do it now while together we stand and while we sing.